Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. So the first person I am about to introduce to you is the co-founder of Progressive Property and Progressive Success. He is a world record holder, a multiple best-selling author, owner and creator of the company that you're sat in now, owns over 600 properties, been featured in all sorts of broadcast media. It is Mr. Mark Homer. The other, I know! And our special guest for your headline speaker, in addition to Mr. Mark Homer, he is a politician, he is a broadcaster, and he is also a campaigner. Please, can you join me in giving the biggest ECA welcome to Mark Homer and Nigel Farage! Hello, good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> well, We've got Mr. Farage here, and... Um, yeah, good I've afternoon. Are there any bankers here? That's what I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think last time we were getting excited about new permitted development rights on GB News, when I, when I came over to see you. Um, Nigel runs a... Well, you're a, you, you present on yeah. a, a GB News. How many, how many of you guys have sort of been listening, watching that channel? Nigel's on 7 o'clock every night. Um, I've been on that a couple of times with him. So, pretty informal, got a series of questions, got a few of your questions as well. Maybe we can get some, you know, from you in the audience today towards the end. We're just far away. Um, so, Nigel, you were a commodities trader in the city uh, a few moons ago. Uh, do, you, do you still trade? Um, and, you know, w what would you get involved with, sort of equities, bonds? Yeah, I was involved with... Uh, London Metal Exchange, so we dealt in copper, aluminium, lead, tin, zinc, nickel, the industrial metals. Um, our clients were Chilean mines that produce copper, uh, washing machine manufacturers in northern Italy, um, and of course speculators who provided the liquidity in the market. Um, I loved it. It was huge fun. Um, when I started, there was no regulator. Everything was done completely <laughs> on trust, done on a handshake, and do you know what? Actually, there were very, very few dishonest people. Always makes it better not having regulation. Well, it don't. <laughs> as soon as regulation came in, it stopped being fun. Your word wasn't your bond. Everything went to lawyers. And now, no one goes out to lunch anymore. So I can't see the point of being in the city. I do trade, uh, but I, I, I don't short-term trade. You know, short-term trading, day trading. If any of you think you can make fortunes day trading, well, very, very good luck to you. You won't. No, you just won't. You know, you might have a good run, but you won't. And also, Mark, to trade, you've got to be on it the whole time. It takes your whole life over. So I, I invest long-term in things, mostly in stocks. Um, and what I've been doing for the last couple of years is buying companies, maybe not very sexy companies, but companies that have been around a long time, actually make products people buy, and pay dividends. And if you look at stock market growth over the last 70 years, it's the reinvestment of dividends where the real growth comes from. So I'm stuck in pretty safe stuff. I still think there is a risk of a big stock market setback over the course of the next 18 months. But kind of, if I'm in good solid companies, um, I'm happy. The thing that amazes me is the whole 
the way that ESG has kind of taken over. You know, we, we must invest in ethical things. Well, of course, that's a load of cobblers. Because ultimately, companies either do well for investors or they don't. And actually, oil, um, gas, uh, coal, all the unpopular stuff has been really good over the last couple of years. So I think uh, some of this modern morality uh, with investing is, is going to come to a shuddering halt. Well, it just isn't sort of ESG, is it? Because if you stop investing in oil, how do you then transition to the sort of cleaner stuff, so-called? Um, you better ask Ed Miliband that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, he seems to think if we fill the North Sea with wind turbines, mm. all our energy problems are going to be solved, and, and they're simply not. So when you're buying sort of equities, would, mm. would you be going into individual equities, or do you buy through tracker funds, or uh, how would you, and would you be active, or, or would you go on a passive No, I, I, I do, through, through my own SIP pension, yes. um, and <laughs> with other monies, no, no, I, I can't. I mean, actually, the, the, the irony is that 2022 was a terrible year for investors mm. because we had stock markets doing badly and bonds doing badly at the same time. It wasn't all this trust's fault, believe me. Um, <laughs> I don't think any of it was. Some of it was, but... Nothing to do with uh, inflation going <laughs> no, up. Absolutely I know, I know. nothing to do with that. So actually, yeah. <laughs> tracker fund, for the last couple of years, tracker funds have outperformed generally managed money and personally managed money. But no, I prefer to, I prefer to invest in stocks myself. It's much more fun. It's much more exciting. Uh, and I think, I think when you do that, you think about things a lot harder. And this, you might not want to name the companies, but sort of, sort of the sectors that you might go into, um, I suppose they're mainly sort of FTSE, and then yeah, no, 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 no. I've been yeah. getting involved in, in quite big cap stocks. Yeah. Uh, nearly all FTSE stocks, yeah. one or two American stocks. Um, yeah, I don't think the, I think the smaller speculative stuff I don't feel now's the right moment. As, as I say, I still think there's a big risk of a stock market setback coming, um, and it's all the other stuff that'll get absolutely hammered. Indeed. Um, okay, so I know over the years, um, you know, you, you've done stats. You were in the European Parliament, um, and you've been a politician for many years with UKIP, uh, Brexit Party. Um, I think it wasn't that long ago you said that you're. Well, why don't you? Why don't you tell us what the sort of biggest skill that you've got that sort of led you there and that, 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 that sort of benefits you um, in, in doing that? Well, two things, really, I think, that helped me in politics. Uh, the first was I finally, age 30, found the thing in life that I was good at. You know, we'll, a lot of people go through their lives and never discover the thing they're actually good at. And what I'm best at is communicating. You know, it's telling a story, selling a message, you know, phrase it as idealistically or as cynically as you want to. But it wasn't until I was 30 that I discovered that actually getting up on a platform or appearing on telly and making an argument and having a debate was what I was good at. But having done, I was 35 when I got elected to the European Parliament. But, you know, I'd worked since I was 18 in commodities. I spent the last nine years of that running my own company, you know, paying the rent, employing people, doing those things. So I think for me, I think for me, um, having business experience, being pretty good on my hind legs, um, and above all, having a sense of humor. Um, because if you go into a job like politics, uh, it can be pretty rough. And as part of that, I think you said um, that when you're in the European Parliament, uh, social media was, was a big thing oh, to sort of. Oh, I, I mean, look, you know, the BBC 
the BBC were never keen to give UKIP any coverage. This was a view that to them was impossible. Everybody wanted to be members of the European Union. You had to be a nut job. In fact, we, what, what were we called? Uh, fruitcakes and loonies. Raving, raving loonies? Yeah, fruitcakes. Yeah. Fruit fruit I quite like fruitcakes um, <laughs> as a term of abuse. Um, yeah, and so actually to, to get the stuff out there that I was doing and I was arguing was really difficult. And then in 2006, seven, along came something called YouTube. And suddenly, as the 08 financial crisis hit, you know, my brother would be sitting at a trading desk in the city of London, and a speech that I'd given in the parliament two hours earlier would be put out by Zero Hedge, now the biggest financial markets um, online website in the world. Um, and so suddenly, my speeches were reaching loads and loads of people. Um, and then one day, they picked a new president of the European Union, this unknown little bloke called Herman Van Rompuy. And I, I don't know what got into me. The, the low-grade bank clerk. I don't know what got into me. I mean, I... <laughs> a lot of people ask for advice about speaking. And I always say to people, don't be overscripted. Don't be overscripted. You know, maybe have two or three points on a small note. But if you look at an audience and talk to an audience, actually, you will engage their attention. You know, you're, you, you've got to speak at a wedding or whatever it is. You might be nervous, but actually, you know, nearly everybody in the room's on your side. Um, and, it, and people can see if you speak from the heart. You know, you know they, they, they sort of feel with you. The trouble with, and I've always done that. The problem is, you never quite know what's going to come out. <laughs> and so, I honestly, I mean, I'd gone in there, Mark, intending to say, who are you? You know, he'd been the Prime Minister of Belgium. I mean, not, literally, nobody had ever heard of this bloke. And there he was, being paid more than Obama. So I'm going to tease him. I'm going to tease him to say, you know, you're Mr. Nobody. And then from nowhere, I say, you have the charisma of a damp rag and the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk. God knows where it came from. I've absolutely <laughs> no. And suddenly, 10 million people have seen it. And then 20 million people have seen it. Then the rap version gets 6 million views. <laughs> and, and almost overnight, I was a household name, for good or bad. Whether people, some people thought I was bloody rude, other people thought I was very funny, but people knew who I was. So yeah, social media changed things hugely. And you're across quite a few channels now. I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty much doing them all, what's it, them yeah. all. I mean, I, I mean, obviously Twitter, or X as we're now supposed to call it, but we never will. Um, and thank God for Elon Musk, because you know, I'm not gonna get into the stolen election Trump narrative. I think he's overcooked that. But was it a free and fair election in November 2020 in America? No, because the, almost the entirety of the social media giants literally blocked out the Hunter Biden laptop. Literally blocked out criminality, um, class A drug taking, all of those things. And now that, now that uh, Elon has bought Twitter, at least we now do have a counterbalance. So I do Twitter, Facebook's becoming harder and harder. Uh, the, level of, the level of political censorship on there is, is, is difficult. Rob has it. Yeah. He can't say a lot of things on there. He can't say no. COVID, all sorts of things. No, yeah. and even people that like stuff I put get suspended. So Facebook's become really very difficult. And TikTok, I've got mixed feelings about. Um, I've got mixed feelings about it because clearly, you know, it is potentially a tool for the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and we see even from today's Sunday Times front pages a lot of these people do not wish us well, um, but you can't avoid it. 
because that's where the younger generation are. They are on TikTok. And um, so I'm doing TikTok as well. And um, it's quite funny, really. I get kids in the street now, point at me and go, it's the TikTok bloke. <laughs> I'm just some old bloke that appears on TikTok to them. So yeah, I'm working across all the channels. And, and you know, we're not America. I'm not a, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a pop singer, but actually, I've got about 3.7 million followers across the platforms, and so it is a, you know, it is quite powerful. Anybody have more in politics? The only, no, not in politics. There's one broadcaster that's got more, but I don't trust this bloke, because <laughs> I think he might have bought them. And his name is Piers Morgan. <laughs> and we're, um, we're not exactly on speakers, let's put it like that. And he doesn't like the current viewing figures either because mine are above his, and he's not keen on that at all. I thought that moment when he got busted, when Trump videoed the interview or recorded the interview, yeah. and then you published it on GB News, I thought that was superb. Yeah, uh, but it, the dossier, yeah, yeah. No, maybe there are some Piers Morgan fans here, I don't know, but, but I'm just not one of them, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on, you've yeah. had some big campaigns with Cash, recently, yep. um, and debanking. Yep. Um, you're worried about central bank digital <coughs> currency. Uh, just talk us through what your concerns are. Well, in a nutshell, I've been hearing for some years about people losing their bank accounts. You know, people I know in business having their bank accounts closed, you know, almost with no explanation given whatsoever. I was also aware that people in public life, whether that's politics or senior positions in the law or the civil service, it isn't just the individual that has problems, it's all their friends and relations. You know, there are 20 people associated with me who are classed as politically exposed persons. I mean, it's absolutely crackers. You know, the idea that my near 90-year-old father is a drug runner, I mean, it's just <laughs> completely for the birds. So I've been aware of this problem. And then it happened to me. You know, I've been with that banking group for 43 years. I ran all my city businesses through them, do my current personal and business stuff through them. You get a phone call, we're closing your accounts, the letter arrives, no explanations given. And I spent five or six weeks thinking, do I go public on this? Because you see, to admit in public you've been debanked, it's actually quite embarrassing, isn't it? It's embarrassing, it's not good for your future credit rating. And, but in the end, after a glass or two of something, just to settle down, I just thought, well, I won't tell you exactly what I thought, but I just thought, the hell with it. They can't, they can't go on behaving like this. So I went public with it. And then we learned the, you know, the, the, the real intricacies that she'd leaked a lie to the BBC as to the reason that it was closed. I then got the subject access request, which said I did not align with the bank's values. And then the whole thing just exploded. And then everyone starts coming out of the woodwork. And I've now set up, Mark, um, a website, accountclosed.org. And I'm encouraging people who've been debanked to go to that site. I've got a load more stories to break. But in essence, there are, there are three or four things at play here. One, you know, this politically exposed person is designed to stop money laundering. Uh, you know, the big drugs cartels launder tens of billions of dollars every month, but none of it comes through UK politicians, and it never has. So it's completely unnecessary. Secondly, we've got the whole issue of the anti-money laundering regulations, AML as it's known. 
You're running a small business, you suddenly have a large cheque paid into your account. The bank looks at it and says, well, rather than go through the bother of ringing Mr. Smith or asking him to come and see us, do you know what? It's cheaper for us just to close the account because it's a suspicious payment. You've got that problem. But the other problem is cash. You know, if you're running a business, if you're running a business, if you're running a fish stall and the average sale is about eight and a half quid, people give you a tenner. You give them change back. Of the 10,000 bank branches that there were in Britain in 2015, by the end of this year, only 4,000 will be open. Three out of five bank branches will have closed in the space of just under nine years. And even when you find a branch that's open, they don't want cash. And Nat Wester proposed that as from the 11th of September, you will not be able to withdraw more than 250 pounds or put in more than 250 pounds. Now, I delivered a petition to Jeremy Hunt the other week, 300,000 signatures, saying don't kill cash. And he has actually responded actively to this. So I hope Nat West begin to rethink it. But here's the real worry. And this is not a conspiracy theory. We are recruiting, the government are recruiting right now, and they've recruited quite a few people already. They'll be introducing in 2030 a central bank digital currency. Mm. It'll begin in an introductory form, but who knows, by 2035, they may decide we'll go completely cashless. Why is that a problem? <clears throat> I already see banks controlling people's expenditure. Unbelievable. I mean, le let's just say for argument's sake, you want to put some money into cryptocurrency. You want to put some money into Ethereum or Bitcoin. If you're with NatWest or HSBC, and you put a couple of grand into, you know, into, into Coinbase, an FCA-registered company, they might close your account. If we have CBDCs, that gives government the ability to have the ultimate control over everything we do in our lives, including personal carbon allowances and God knows what. And I just fear, I feel, and this, and this EULA's extension, I know Peter was a long way away from that, but this EULA's extension has made us all realize that there seems to be no limit to the levels of surveillance or, or power that governments want over our lives. And I would have thought, uh, in a room full of entrepreneurs like this, we should all think that's a very, very bad and very worrying thing. So I am absolutely full on don't kill cash because I do not want to live. I don't want to live in communist China, basically. So what can we all do to uh, sort of uh, manage these risks? I mean, you know, this business, four or five years ago, we were using almost exclusively WorldPay to take card payments, and we had a, a letter through. Um, you know, there was a bit of a lead up, and they basically said, we're going to close your account, you've got three months. And, and obviously, we, we then couldn't take any money uh, if, that had, if that had gone through. And in the end, I think we had to give them half a million pounds to keep the account open. And then they sort of worked it down over a period of time. Uh, we got the money back eventually. Um, but what that taught me was that we weren't going to be with one payment yeah, processor. So I think now we're, I think we're with six. Um, because yesterday, Square went down for yep. five hours. Yep. Two, two, million, two million retailers used Square, mm. went down for five hours. So if that was what you were relying on, <laughs> you had a problem. Yeah. So I think this applies for payment processors. I think it applies for bank accounts. Um, you know, we, we're across two 
we, we, I think we bank with about four or five different banks for our accounts and, and across two sort of big banking groups. Um, you know, because I remember in 2008, slightly different reasons, but when the banks got into bother back then, um, you know, they were coming knocking on our doors saying, give us two million pounds back, give us five million, you're not in covenant, because they were running out of money. So I, th I think the key to this is yeah. you, you've got to, in all your businesses, have multiple um, different, uh, be using multiple different banks, and they need to be within different banking groups. Uh, so it can't just be, I don't know, Ulster yeah. Bank and RBS and Coots. It's time consuming. It's it time consuming yeah. and it's a bore, but it's less of a bore than being closed down by a bank, even when you've done nothing wrong. So it really is worth it. It gives you time to move. And the, the same goes I with I wish your I'd loans. done it. <laughs> <laughs> the same goes with your loans, your mortgages. You know, we won't go below three. So even, even if you know, I manage to get really good facilities from say two you know, banking groups and they're with the cheapest, I'll always have a third and have a good relationship so that then if suddenly the demand money back, we've got two others with the existing relationship we can go to. So I think, I think there's, 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 there's a lot of lessons in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting with the central bank digital currencies, they're going to be able to control what each pound is spent on, aren't they? Um, yeah. Well, as I say, I mean, you know, the banks are doing it already to a certain degree, but, but once once you have a system that government has total oversight over, and don't buy the argument, by the way, don't buy the argument that if you're not doing anything wrong, you've nothing to fear. That's what those truck drivers thought in Canada. Yeah, people have driven trucks for years, suddenly told that unless, they, unless their arms resembled pincushions because of the number of jabs they were supposed to have, suddenly found themselves outside the law and with their bank accounts frozen. That's what Trudeau did. That's what the Prime Minister of Canada did with the banks supporting him. So, no, I think we need to have as much personal freedom uh, of, of, of use of our money and how we spend our money as we possibly can. So you've got the government sort of making statements about not killing cash and mm -hmm. debanking. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that, because if, you know, if I said something and delivered a petition, mm -hmm. they'd just ignore me. What do you think it is that, that has actually got them listening to you? Well, they're bloody frightened of me, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, they've, always, they, they've always been frightened of me. I mean, they always think, you know, metaphorically, that I'm kind of outside number 10 with a Molotov cocktail, you know. Um, I, I emphasise metaphorically. Um, no, look, for good or bad, for good or bad, you know, I do have a big voice. And, and ultimately, the reason I spoke out on the banking stuff wasn't for me. It was realizing I could actually be standing up for a heck of a lot of people. And when we now understand that a million bank accounts have been closed in Britain in the last four years, I mean, can you believe that? One million bank accounts have been closed in the last four years. And people in perfectly legal businesses are having their accounts closed. Anybody in the gun trade having their accounts closed. People in the jewelry business, because there's, there's quite a bit of cash involved, having their accounts closed. So I felt, Mark, I felt by causing a bit of a scene, which I'm very good at, <laughs> I thought like, that we would get a debate going. And I'll be honest with you, I've actually been quite shocked how well the government have responded. They've responded really quickly on this. I thought we'd get a few platitudes, but actually, you know, Hunt is saying it is illegal to close people's bank accounts on the basis of their opinions. So let's hope that this strong language translates into action. A lot of that will depend on the Financial Conduct Authority 
um, who I don't have the greatest um, amount of faith in at this current moment in time. But, uh, but no, sometimes, sometimes, I mean, you know, there are times when, there are times, well, I'm not famous, I'm infamous. You know, I mean, I mean there is a difference. There are times when it's a blooming nuisance, but there are times when it can be used to very good effect, and I, and I really hope that we can do some good here. So is Trump coming back? It's going to be the biggest, the greatest. <laughs> it's going to be so cool. Um, <laughs> so great, so great, unbelievable. Uh, Nigel, great guy, friend of mine, great guy, great guy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know, <laughs> you can love him or hate him. And quite often we hate people because of the impression of them we have through the media. People are portrayed in the media in a certain way and we think, oh my God, they're absolutely terrible. And I saw this when I was a young, when I was a young elected politician. Certain politicians who were, who were, I mean, Ian Paisley, the Reverend Ian Paisley. <laughs> now you would have thought growing up watching the BBC that this man was an absolute monster. Yeah, I did. Now, yeah, yeah, no, well, so did I. Mm. Now, and okay, you know, whilst I never quite went along with his views on the Pope and all that blooming sectarian, but actually, when I got to meet Paisley as a young MEP, I couldn't meet a more charming man. He was absolutely delightful. He opened, he opened the door for people. You know, you'd get off the plane at Gatwick and the, the top security guys were there for him. He'd introduce himself. So people aren't always as you think they are. Um, Trump, you know, and if you take Trump's media image, you would think he's very loud, brash, outspoken. The truth is, he's much worse than that in real life. <laughs> Look, I love him. I love him. I have great fun with him. What you see is what you get. There's no pretending. And I would argue, I would argue, Mark, on the big stuff he's been right. None of us knew anything about China until Trump came along. None of us knew what China's ambitions for the world were. It was Trump that woke us up to it. Trump was the first American president in five not to launch a foreign war, which meant we didn't get involved in yet another foreign war. You know, he brought together Arab countries and Israel with the Abraham Accords. There was some very good stuff that he did. And I thought for all the world he was going to win a landslide, and then COVID happened. Clearly, the legal problems that are mounting up are, are one or two of them are very serious. Georgia is very serious. Um, but you know something? When Al Gore lost out by a cigarette paper to George Bush in 2000. The Democrats said it was a rigged, stolen election. I didn't see any legal proceedings against Al Gore. What is happening in America is they've discovered a deep flaw. They have a political judiciary. Thank God, in this country, the Home Secretary and the Director of Public Prosecutions are two separate, different people. Thank God. Whatever faults we have in Britain, and there are many, we actually have one of the best and most trusted legal systems in the world. Whatever they do to Trump, he will become the Republican nominee. And I, I honestly think he's got a better than 50% chance of winning the election next year. Um, some would say that, a, you know, if, if some would say uh, that if the Republicans found a less controversial figure, they'd have more chance of winning. True or not, he's going to be the candidate. Mm. And, and I think the Democrats have done a terrible job. 
I think the rise of violence in American cities in particular, you know, points to a society that's in real, real trouble. So it's going to be a lively campaign. So if he does come back, yeah. does he let Russia take Ukraine? <clears throat> it's not a question of letting Russia take Ukraine. Um, I think his feeling on this, and, and, and this, is, I mean, this, this is difficult, isn't it? On the one hand, we see the moral case for supporting Ukraine. Of course we do. But on the other, you know, some of these contested territories are very complicated. You know, they're like the Palestine-Israel argument or the Northern Ireland border argument. And there are huge, strong historical passions on both sides. No one wants to talk about peace. No one. There is no peace negotiation. You're looking at death rates and, and wounding rates in this war, not very dissimilar to what was happening in 1917. Now, this is how bloody and awful and ghastly this whole thing is. What Trump says is he'll bring both sides to the table and negotiate a peace deal. He may succeed, he may not. But I think the idea that we should, the, the idea that, 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 that negotiation should be going on, I believe is right. So then do energy prices fall? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think actually, um, the truth is, the European Union is now buying more oil and gas from Russia than it was before the war began. What a bunch of hypocrites. Thank God we've left. <laughs> so, you know, and of course, it's all being transshipped through third countries. Um, energy prices. I, I mean, there is always a risk that we get a, fur, a further spike up in oil and gas, but I kind of doubt it. I think, I think the world's facing a bigger problem than that, actually. And I, I know that what's happening in Russia, Ukraine is very serious. I think China poses a much bigger problem. The Chinese economy is in free fall. It's in real problems. Youth unemployment is 21%, and they haven't updated the figure for four months. And, and that's what they tell you? That's what they tell you. Um, I was talking to Mark earlier. If you think about um, salaries, average salaries and average house prices in Britain, it's a ratio of about nine, roughly, which we think is historically very high. It's 35 in Beijing. <laughs> 35 times in Beijing. So you've got this gigantic economic bubble that has built up in China. Debt, or huge debt. Massive debt. China, or as my friend Donald would say, China. Um, <laughs> I love the way he says China. Um, and so real economic problems, and clearly a big, set, a, a big setback and big bankruptcies as a result of debt coming in China. And so I think the biggest problem the world faces is, I suspect they'll invade Taiwan next year. I mean, I seriously do. I, I, I think there's a very... To, to sort of divert attention yeah. from the problems. Yeah, to divert attention from the problems. And then to be able to hold the West... They will hold the West to ransom on chips. Because still over 60% of all the chips that are used in every new car are being manufactured in Taiwan. And in America, they're spending tens of billions trying to catch up with this, but we ain't going to be there by next year. So that's, that's, that's the big worry, I think, that we face. And they're demolishing tower blocks in, yeah, literally, in China. The, the overbuild has been so great that tower blocks that have been built, the firms have gone bust, they've been demolished without anybody ever having moved in. And you saw the Evergrande, one of the biggest uh, building Developers, companies. Yeah, massive. Develop, I mean, yeah. Huge. And they, they filed for Chapter 11 with their American listing. So this is, this is quite big stuff. Um, quite big stuff. 
almost feels like it was all a bit of a lie, doesn't it? You know, China was going to be sort of the world superpower. Yeah. It's going to su surpass the US. Yeah. Uh, what, tw 2030s? Uh, now looks very unlikely, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, look, you know what? Whoever runs America, whatever divisions there are in America, never, ever underestimate America. America is the greatest free market economy in the world. They have an amazing work ethic in America. You know, people actually want to get up off their backsides and go to work of a morning um, and do stuff. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm actually quite bullish the dollar. I think, I think the dollar against the euro, against the pound, um, is going to continue to be strong. But I say the same thing here. I mean, you know, there are things here to be very depressed about. Our productivity is terrible. Our civil service, did you see it with, with the hot week last week? Eight out of ten civil servants were working from home. <laughs> and you're all paying for that. Your taxes are paying for all of this. So we've got problems. Um, and we've got too many young people who think the world owes them a living. I mean, we have got these problems, and yet, you know, good, well-run businesses will go on making profits and doing well. So, you know, it's easy sometimes, despite politics and despite many problems, there are still huge opportunities. So it looks like Labour's on their way in. Yeah. The Conservatives, uh, it looks pretty unlikely that they're going to be able to row, row back. And Starmer's had... Tony Blair out, he's sort of wheeled him out publicly now. He's probably been talking to him for some time. Yeah. Uh, it looks like he, he's sort of going down that road, yeah. doesn't it? Well, I'd rather have a Labour government that went down the... And I mean, a lot of things Blair did I didn't agree with, but I'd rather have a Labour government going down the Blair route than a Labour government going down the Corbyn route, mm. frankly. Mm. Um, look, the Tories, I mean, I helped them in 2019 like you can't believe. I got rid of Mrs May humiliated her in those European elections. She resigned. Um, Boris was obviously going to become leader. I did him a huge favour in that general election. You know, I didn't want a second referendum. I didn't want Corbyn to be the Prime Minister. And I gave Boris a huge helping hand. And I think they've, uh, frankly, frankly, they've been awful since 2019. And especially bad to small business. But they put corporation tax up by 30% earlier this year. What deregulation have we seen? They've been freed of the European Union. I mean, take IR35. Classic. You know, really a crippling. Reams of paperwork through there and, because of that. Yeah, and the threat. Yeah. And the yeah. threat. To reverse the threat from the individual to the employer. Um, so, look, I, I think they've, they deserve to lose the election. They'll lose it pretty heavily. But do we really think Labour are going to be worse? I mean, I'm not sure they would be. What are they going to do? Let small boats cross the English Channel? Um, <laughs> what, are, what are they going to do? Put taxes up to the highest in 71 years? I mean, I mean how much worse could it be? I thought quite clever, of, uh, quite clever of Rachel Reeves last week to say no tax increases. So it's, just, it's the same strategy that Blair used. <laughs> Mark, I'd rather have a free market... I'd rather have a free market, small government, conservative party in power. At the moment, that party simply doesn't exist, and therefore they need time out of office to rethink who they actually are. Uh, and let's see. You know, in 1975, they came back with a complete rethink. Woman, a woman who lived just up the A1 here a few miles, um, and it was a completely change of direction for the Tories in 97. They just waved the white flag and mimicked everything that Blair did. 
I think it was a big opportunity for a reset for the Conservatives mm -hmm. after the next election. But yeah, it'll be a Labour majority for sure. Do you believe them that they're not going to put taxes up? Well, they won't. I, do you know what? They won't do it in the first term. They won't do it in the first so, term. So you think we're safe for, for the, maybe five years now? Yeah. No more corp tax increases? No. no. Income tax? They'd be mad to. Removing reliefs? Well, look, the real removal of reliefs is what Jeremy Hunt's done by freezing the bans until 2028. But the end of, I mean, 40p, for, since 1988, 40p was accepted as the top rate of tax. In every year of Blair's premiership, 40p was the top rate of tax. Gordon Brown then puts it up, puts it up again. The Tories timidly got rid of one of those rises. They, the brief 44-day truss experiment <coughs> attempted to get us back to 40p. But by the end of next year, bearing in mind that 1.5 million people, 1.5 million people paid top rate tax in 1988, by the end of next year, 8 million people will be paying 40p or more. That shows you just how much taxes have gone up at every level in this country. So if, if a Labour government was to put up taxes in the first term, they'd be committing an act of electoral self-harm. I don't believe they'll do it. But through stealth, reliefs go, sort of yeah, no, no, increase look, the threshold. Look, look, it's, not, it's not going to be a tax-cutting agenda. It's not going to do anybody any favours, but then nor of the Conservatives. And does, it, I mean, does anyone believe that the Conservatives will cut taxes? Maybe a penny off income tax before the election, so we think they're a small state, low tax party. They're not. So look, you know, the message to small businesses, the message to entrepreneurs is very clear. Uh, government doesn't understand you. Government doesn't particularly like you. Government is much happier working with big corporates. That's where their donations come from. That's where their retirement jobs are. That's how it is. So it's up to you to get on and do things on your own. Simple as that. You're going to get nothing from government for a very, very long time. So just write that off and, and, and just move on. So at the moment, first past the post, yeah. um, and <coughs> it benefits the incumbent, uh, sort of flip-flops between Conservative and <coughs> Labour. Uh, we don't <coughs> really see anybody else with much of a chance. No. Do you think proportional representation is likely to happen shortly? I, I think, I mean, Labour? look, I don't think with our current system anything will ever really change. Anything will really change. And I, and I think the, 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 the intellectual choice at the next election is probably the narrowest we've ever faced. You know, what are the real philosophical fundamental differences between Starmer's Labour and, and Rishi's Conservatives? Almost nothing. I mean, literally almost nothing. You know, from net zero to what they're now all saying on tax to, I mean, there are almost no differences. So I think under first past the post, nothing will change. I think we have to have a degree of proportionality in our system. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, Mark, it's very difficult for me to comment on this objectively because nobody in British history has ever got more votes for fewer seats than I got as leader well, in 2015. I was coming on to that. Yeah, I, you know, and I mean, <laughs> and actually, you know, I have polled this. I have polled this recently. And if I was to say, right, I'm going to do this all again, and if I was to go around the country with the energy that I had 10 years ago, maybe it's still there, I don't know, maybe it's not. If I was to do all those things, 
I think I, I believe I could get nearly five million votes. And would that make you? Would that give you a majority? Give about three seats. Three. Okay, right. No winner. So why am I going to do it? Yeah. Why am I going to do it? Under PR, could you become prime minister? Yes. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, Georgia Maloney's vote in Italy is the kind of vote I could get under PR. And she's, a, who, by the way, is doing a rather a good job. You know, you know, all this shock horror, this terrible woman's becoming PM of Italy. Well, actually, she's done a really quite good job. So, you know, point is, the current political establishment don't want change. But increasingly, the public do. And, there's a, and there's, it's interesting. A lot of voters say, well, we believed in first past the post because it gave a strong and stable government. Well, this mob have had an 80-seat majority. How many prime ministers have there been? <laughs> I think there were five education secretaries last year alone. We've had 10 justice ministers in 10 years. So the old traditional arguments that it gave a stable government are slowly going out of the window. I think we will change our electoral system, but I, I suspect it'll be too late for me. And Starmer's not doing it. The Labour Party at their last annual conference voted to introduce PR. Because it sort of benefits them a little bit, doesn't it? But once in government, <laughs> I, I, yeah. let's see. I, I, it's coming, but I think, I think that's a 10-year change. Okay, so we've got a, a few questions uh, which you guys have, have sort of sent in. Um, Are they clean? <laughs> I have been through them all. The pen's been yeah. through them, yeah. No, no, I just took, took a couple out of the pile, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so you get attacked quite a lot. Uh, you, you know, you, you, you sort of walk around the country, some people love you, yeah. sometimes you, yeah. you can be a Marmite figure to some. Yeah. Um, how do you sort of keep going and, and, and keep that resilience in the face of such negativity and opposition? Well, it's market some and some, isn't it? I mean, you know, when I'm, out, when I'm out where real people live, outside the M25, generally people are very nice. They come up and they have a chat and they're nice, and, they, and whether they agree or disagree, they're generally quite agreeable. The odd person will shout something rude from across the street, but then that would happen if I was a footballer. You know, or, or well-known. I mean, unfortunately, anybody that's near celebrity status now has to live with this. The mobile phone has broken down the levels of respect and space that we give other human beings. You know, when I was a kid, if you saw somebody famous on the street, you might sort of whisper to your mum behind your ear, but you wouldn't dream of going up to them. But now, I could be on an aeroplane, you know, asleep, and somebody walks down the aisle and just stands there taking pictures. So, <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. So, in London, it's more difficult. In London, it's more difficult. There is sort of a, there is a central London. I mean, there's a, there's a new breed of human being there. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what they are. I've absolutely no idea what sex most of them are. <laughs> and by the way, I couldn't care less, be what you want, but I just don't know anymore. I can't work it out. Um, and there's a level of intolerance. It's the intolerance that I can't get. But I kind of think that people who believe there should be no borders, there should be no countries, um, you know, 
or that, or that gender should be, you know, rather like a Nat West badge. You know, be a boy on one side, girl on the other, and swap each day. I mean, God help us. But I kind of, I think that people that think like that are just deluded. But they think that people who think as I do are evil. That's literally where we are. And they believe it so strongly that they don't think I've got a right to say what I... And that's why, you know, look what they've done to J.K. Rowling. But unbelievable that a woman like that, who was actually considered to be on the left of politics, but just happened to stand up for what she sees as women's rights, is literally driven out of public life by this. So it is difficult. It is difficult. Um, but Mark, the real answer to your question is, um, I, am, I, am, I am selective about where I go. I don't, I mean, you know, I don't get... I don't get on a train, for example. I wouldn't do that, because if you're on a train, you're trapped. So I have to think about my security and what I do. I have a driver every day for taking me around London. When I come and do events, you've been to one of the public, you know, I have to have security. And I've got to live with that for the rest of my life. Um, it's a bit of a price to pay. I couldn't really care less, personally. But, but it's, not, it's not so much fun for the family. That's where, that's where it's hard. That's where it's hard. Um, I've got four kids, and three of them are sensible. One of them, well, I mean, I, I don't know what university's done to her brain. God only knows. <laughs> but, but it's quite funny. But my kids, when they're asked, are you any related, say no. Because <laughs> it's not worth the risk. No, you've got to be, you've got to be very resilient to do what I did. I mean, I think my strongest thing, Mark, wasn't how I deal with the public or how the public... The strongest thing was not changing my mind in Brussels. Because there were lots of people that went to Brussels, you know, with a similar view to me, but who were softened over the years by the system, and I, and I never allowed myself to be. Um, and that's about having the courage of your convictions. You know, I believed in what I believed in. Um, and it's... Because most people don't want to stand up with the ca cameras rolling and be booed by 500 people. Most people want to be cheered by 500 people. I loved it. <laughs> so I didn't change. But no, it is difficult. It is difficult. And I, I, but, but I think generally, as I say, I, I, you know, I, I do know a couple of guys that are footballers, a couple of friends that are cricketers, and it, it's, it's the same now for anybody in public life. It's much more difficult out there than it used to be. We've become a less polite, less respectful society, I'm afraid. You enjoy being booed. You enjoy, yeah. uh, I mean, I saw with this sort of debanking, it, it all got quite fraught and you sort of came alive and quite enjoyed. Oh, I loved uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> what was about yeah. to yeah. What's um, coming next, you know? <laughs> what, what, what sort of led you there? I mean, something when you were younger, or what, what really set you up to, um, to have that level of resilience? Mark is asking, why am I a weirdo, basically? Well, it, it can be very useful uh, in business, <laughs> very useful. I've always been very single-minded. <laughs> I've always been very single-minded. I've always been, even from, even from, even from mid-teens, I've always been disinterested in what people think about me. I'm, I, I couldn't care. I couldn't care less. If you like me, that's great. If you don't, I really couldn't care less. I'm not interested. I've always, I'm very single-minded in everything I do. Um, 
And actually, I'll be honest with you, I mean, people that have been my employees, my colleagues, I mean, I've got, you know, generally people who, who work closely with me stay as friends for years and years to come. Uh, so there's a very tight group of people that, that I get on with. But look, you can't be all things to all people in life. Be true to yourself. I often get asked, particularly by young groups, you know, student groups or whatever, I might go and go to a private lunch or dinner, and young people ask for life advice. I say to all of them, be true to yourself. Because if you're not, how can you ever be happy? If all you're trying to do is please other people, you could never, ever be fulfilled and be happy. And that means that you will upset some people as you go along. But that's part of growing up. It's part of being a person. So, yeah, with me, it's a slightly extreme case. But, uh, but you know, there we are. The only problem is, I think women find it quite difficult to marry me and live with me. Because <laughs> I'm not very easy. <laughs> and I think it's true. If you're very, very single-minded in what you do, it's, it, it is difficult for those that are very, very, very close to you. It's, um, but that's life. So back to your questions. Um, yeah. You've obviously had a lot of people contact you uh, about them being debanked. Mm. You've seen a lot of different sort of banking groups. You, we don't need to sort of name who the main offenders are. I'm sure we can guess. Well, why not? Uh, <laughs> 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 it's HSBC and NatWest. Mm. They, are, they are the worst two by a long, from what I can see of it thus far, you know, I've had about 12,000 people contact me who've been debanked. There's a lot more that will contact me. 12,000. About 12,000 so far. Mostly companies. Mostly companies. Because if, if people have been individually debanked, they've generally found it quite easy to get a bank account somewhere else. It's the businesses that find it hard. That's where the real pain comes. And from what I can see, those two, those two have been the worst. But, you know, it, it, it is still a work in progress. And conversely... Most people will wanting to be know, wanting to know where they should go. You know, where, who's probably going to treat them the most fairly? Well, it depends what you do and what you need. I mean, there are some very good fintech solutions out there. There are plenty of the fintech companies, you know, and a lot of them are set up to do foreign exchange business or whatever it is. But there are plenty. You know, if if all you really need is a place to receive money and a place to pay money out from then some of the fintechs are really, really quite good. And there are plenty of them. There are plenty of them. But of course, what they can't do is they can't lend you money if you need to borrow money at some point in time. Most can't really give you a debit card, which when you're running a business, a debit card is quite useful. Um, and they can't pay you any interest, which suddenly, with rates where they are, if you've got money sitting around... So, so there are payment solutions out there, and plenty of them. Uh, but in terms of banks... I don't know. I, I am pleased to say that one of the major high street banks has now contacted me to say, we, we want your business. And I'll be announcing this week who it is. Um, and I think that's quite a shrewd move on their part. I thought that would have happened earlier. It's been very... Uh... Well, I had a lot of fintechs reach out to me. A lot of fintechs reach out to me. A lot of them run by really good people. So, so, so which of the... People might not know, you know, which ones are fintechs. So just give us some names that... That um, we can oh, start using. Yeah, I mean, I'd be Starling, Monzo, those sorts. Of no, I, 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 look, Starling, Monzo <coughs> are fine, but, but, it's still not perfect. It, 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 it's not a full banking service. You know, Revolut, whatever it is, they can all be very useful, but it's not a full. It depends what you need. 
But, but I think most people in business need to have a relationship with a bank or more than one bank, because one day, through no fault of your own, you might need to borrow some short-term money. You know, it does happen. Those problems do occur. So, yeah, all of those names are fine, but it, it's, it's still not quite where you need to be, mm. in my view. Okay, this is a question about stress. Um, the government have told landlords to make sure that their, their EPCs are coming up to a C. Uh, and obviously we've had all the, the sort of attacks in terms of, of tax and uh, not being able to offset your mortgage interest yeah. and stamp duty. All stuff that I've covered on the show, by yeah. the way, with you. Yeah. He's very good on telly, you know. <laughs> so how do you... How do you manage, this says, how do you manage stress apart from drinking in, in what you do? How do you keep fit and healthy um, and, and manage your time better? And I think it's relating to those stresses. Dennis Thatcher was asked this. It was Dennis's 70th birthday. And he was invited by the Conservative Women's Federation, as they then were. So Dennis turns up, a couple of hundred conservative ladies for lunch, on his 70th birthday. One of them asked him, Dennis, how is it you're so active, so energ energized, so fit? Uh, and Dennis replied, gin and cigarettes. Um, <laughs> which some of the audience thought was funny and some didn't. I guess that's the kind of answer I give. Um, I'm very active, both physically and mentally. You know, and I, I, mean, I was up this morning at five o'clock. I was out fishing by half past five this morning. Got a nice little bucket of mackerel. We had those for breakfast. I came here. Um, I'm busy. I'm busy. Don't sleep much. Don't, don't really believe in it. I'm going, I'm going to There's no time, is there? Just too much to do. It's very saturated, uh, isn't it? And, and stress-wise, do you know what? <laughs> there, were, there were times leading UKIP and the Brexit party of real stress. And the worst, I'll tell you the worst. The worst one was the assassination of Joe Cox, the Labour MP. And she was murdered in the street. I remember when I heard the news, thinking, well, you know, because who, you know, who knew which way that was going to be? You know, was that going to be a Muslim extremist? No, it wasn't. It was a right-wing nut job. You know, no one knew what it was going to be. And they suspended the campaign, and that meant all the momentum that we had just died, because we were on a roll. You know, the day before, I'd done battle with Bob Geldof on the Thames, and we definitely won that one. And, and I remember... By, by Sunday, by Sunday, hostilities had resumed. And I was appearing on the Sunday morning shows, and Osborne was going on for the government. And basically, what you know, The Guardian was saying, and what was being allowed to be said on the BBC, was that Joe Cox's murder had been caused by my narrative. The narrative that I'd created had led to the murder of Joe Cox. You know. I mean, try to defend yourself against that charge. And I remember on the Monday morning, it was about half a six, quarter to seven, car was on the drive, there were about eight photographers and cameras <laughs> outside the front door. And it was the only time I sort of went for the latch and thought, do I really want to do this? I mean, you know, do I really want to walk out of the front door into all of this? So that was the most stressful time I had. But generally, when we travel, I mean, I spoke at over 2,000 meetings around the country in my political career. You know, town halls, village halls, up and down the length of the land. Um, generally, yeah, after a day, 
with the team I was with, we'd stay in a hotel somewhere, normally sort of out in the country if possible, and we'd have a few drinks and a good laugh. And that was my de-stress. And I'm sure there are some Puritans who would say that we shouldn't even be doing that. But I've, I've, I've generally, Mark, I've generally managed, I've just, I've just, just laughed things off. And, and, the, and one other last little thing. You know, I've had, I survived, I survived a very major road traffic accident when I was 21. I was hit by a car, very, very lucky to survive. I had cancer in my 20s, and then I survived a light air crash in 2010. I mean, stress? You want to talk about stress? You're in a light aircraft, you know, that's crashing to the ground, and you think, well, that's it, I've got about a minute left to live. That's stress. That's real stress. And it made me think afterwards. Made me think afterwards about the generations that went before us and what they had to live through and what they had to go through. You know? So, um, yeah. What I, what I don't get is why there are so many young people with anxiety. The doctor's diagnosing anxiety. A couple of thousand new cases every day of people in their teens and twenties who've got anxiety. And maybe this is a hangover from the pandemic. Then maybe lockdown will prove to be the biggest mistake any British government ever made in peacetime. Because I just cannot, I cannot see another reason why so many young people would be saying they're suffering from, suffering from anxiety. Social media? I wonder if social media, is that enough on its own? I don't know. I mean, clearly, we've been praising social media up. Well, well no, we haven't. We've been balanced, haven't we? We've said it launched my career. It helped shake up politics, but it's taken away p personal space. Um, I suppose if you're in your teens and you're engaging on groups and you're reading horrid things other teenagers are saying about you, may maybe, maybe you're right. I don't know. I, I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure anyone does, but it could be a factor. Great. So have you guys got any questions? Um, what do you think about um, the Saudi um, 2030 vision and the Middle East kind of economy movement? Look, I think it's very simple. I mean, we, we've been through a really odd time with Middle Eastern policy. The European Union, President Obama and Boris decided that Iran were the good guys. We did the big deal with Iran, the big, the, the, the big Iran nuclear deal. Please don't build any bombs, and we'll give you tens of billions of dollars. And we gave them, effectively, tens of billions of dollars, and they went on building the bomb. And I, you know, to me, that regime, it's been there 40 years. It is the most oppressive, disastrous regime in the whole of that region of the world, uh, to the huge detriment of the Iranian people and world peace. Trump came in and said, no, 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 you've got all this wrong. You know, we may not like some of the culture of Saudi Arabia, but it isn't a threat to world peace, and we can trade and do business with Saudi Arabia. And that was the right decision. That was the right decision. Um, without doubt, that was the right decision. You know, you can't be friends with both. You have to make a decision. That's what we've done. Uh, let's hope we stay there because there is some considerable talk between the EU and Biden 
of putting the Iran deal back on the agenda. Yeah, which I very much hope they won't. All that worries me is you know, global money coming into sport can be good. The Premier League is a fantastic example of that. But if Saudi Arabia are going to buy every blooming sport, I'm not quite sure what we're going to be left with. I mean, they've already bought the golf tour, and they're currently offering footballers crazy sums of money. But no, look, as I say, culturally, many things in Saudi Arabia we wouldn't like or approve of, and equally they wouldn't like or approve of things that we do. But, yeah, no, no, it has, and it will go on changing. I'm certain of that. But no, we need to be friends with the Saudis. That's the right place. What do you think? Um, yeah, I completely agree. Well, um, this new guy, Mohammed bin Salman, he's, he's changing uh, the, the world, really. Um, obviously, the talks of peace with, with Israel will be completely a game changer as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the competition between Dubai and, and Saudi, well, you know, like, like little kids, really. I build a tower, I build a bigger one and a, and a, and a taller one. I so quite enjoy watching all I that. I enjoy, exactly, yeah. 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 So and Dubai, I mean, the number of Brits that are going to Dubai is incredible. Yeah. Absolutely blooming incredible. On okay. that note, I'll invite you on the 23rd of November, we're launching PPN Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, I couldn't resist. Sorry, Mark. Yeah. We'll have a chat. We'll have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> what they're building in Saudi Arabia is quite unbelievable. I mean, this, this line, 20 miles long, know, something like a skyscraper high for 20 miles in a line. Oh, is it? Well, I think the first phase is 20, yeah. and then it then it will move. Yeah, and uh, it, it's as high as a skyscraper all the way. Along. I mean, it's a Incredible. completely new concept. New Incredible. islands. It's it's nuts. What hello, they're doing. Ma hello, hello, Nigel. Um, I've got two questions for you. Yes. Um, there's an African saying: If you want to go fast, you, you go alone, mm. and if you want to go far, you go together. With others. Um, I just want to know if you still have your, you, you're someone that can stand alone, even, even if, if, if you can stand on the truth, even, if, it's, even it, if it means standing alone. So about Brexit, do you still feel, you, with, with this African saying, do you still feel you're, you're right about it? You, are you still convinced, convinced it is the right d decision? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I've always been a bit of a loner politically. Um, and on the question of leaving the EU, which we now call Brexit, but on the question of leaving the EU, um, I was in a very lonely position. I mean, it was me against everybody. I mean, I, I remember at one point, at one point, as a young MEP, I mean, there wasn't one member of the House of Commons who said we should leave the EU. Not one. Not one national newspaper, not one significant business, not one trade union uh, boss. You know, it really was me against the rest. Um, but in the end, uh, that changed. Uh, look, it is never wrong, in my view, it is never wrong for people to be free and able to determine their own futures. And that was the fundamental flaw with the European project. It wasn't just about trade and friendship in a post-war world that did need reconciliation, a uh, huge reconciliation. It was always going to be more than that, and it became political, <laughs> and you finish up with a situation where laws can get made for you that you can't change, you can't alter. So on the sovereignty <coughs> point, the self-governance point, 100% yes. That begs the second question. Has it been a benefit? Has it been a success? Mm -hmm. Any historian would tell you 
it's much too short a time frame to judge. But that's a bit of a cop-out, really. I think on the world stage, we're standing much taller. I think the nuclear submarine deal with Australia, the AUKUS deal, uh, is a good illustration of that. I think the fact we're signing up to this new Pacific partnership is, again, another sign of that. I think the fact that, that Sunak has much more chance of a close trade collaboration with India than do our friends in Brussels enhances that. I think the role we took in Ukraine, whether you agree with what we did or not, we, we've been the leaders. We've led the way for actually helping Zelensky. We've, we've embarrassed the rest of Europe into it and I think encouraged the Americans there. So on the world stage, a big success. Domestically, nil point. <laughs> it's been terrible. And, and, and the just one last quick thing. And many conservatives will say, well, Brexit's failed. You haven't delivered us what we wanted. We wanted control of our borders. We've got nothing. And we wanted big government off our backs to get on and run our businesses. And it hasn't happened. So there are big disappointments in terms of the way it's been delivered. But yes, I still believe it was the right thing to do. What do you think? Um, I agree with you, but I still think like I said, it's better together than going alone. Maybe, you, you, like you said, the other areas that you think, I think you, you can work that together with, with, in the European Union. What do you feel uh, there are disadvantages that you see in the, in the European Union? Why not work it together, trash it together, and move forward together? I just don't think we have enough in common. Oh, okay. I, and I don't, you know, I don't think Greece and Germany have enough in common to be in the same economic and monetary union. I certainly don't think that Hungary and France, culturally, you know, I mean, they're actually poles apart on many things. So look, I mean, there's a big difference between cooperation, right? We're, you know, NATO is an example of cooperation. Countries can work together, be friends together, but the idea that you give up control of your country to a bunch of unelected duffers in Brussels um, I've never found very attractive, but listen, I take the points you make. A quick one too. Um, I believe you know Dr. Arikana Shionbori. Yep. Um, definitely, I don't need to go further. You know what France is doing to African nations? Yes. And I believe other colonizers as, uh, as well. Um, would you start to change the narrative regarding Im immigration? For I know your stand on immigration. Mm. Would it, can this start with you? If people can know this, then they can know what, I'm sorry to say, the government, West, France, UK, and others are doing to African nations. Because like uh, Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni said, the solution has to be in Africa. The solution has to be France not doing that. So that yeah, I mean, look. That, that, that will end this immigration problem. I, what, I, what is your stand on that? It's very interesting to see that the former French colonies are far less developed than the former British colonies. That's a fact. By a massive factor. Every time you go, you, you go anywhere in the yeah, Caribbean, yeah, it's, it's yeah. so obvious. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> Africa particularly. And all this anti-British narrative is not backed up by fact and history. You know, we generally, we weren't perfect, we generally left the colonies in a damn sight better state than any other colonizing power has ever done. Look, uh, the immigration argument's very simple. Uh, we've had more people come to Britain since 2010 than came in the previous 2,000 years. 
Uh, we can't go on like this. We, we literally, we cannot go on with a rapidly expanding population in terms of health, in terms of transport, in terms of housing, in terms housing, of social I mean, care. Sort of, sort of let it well, <laughs> that depends whether you that depends whether you own any already or not, doesn't it? If you've got stock already, you're in a good you're in a good place. Um, we just can't go on doing it. Uh, it's been so difficult to have a genuine debate about this, because the way of shutting down the debate is to say that anyone that talks about it is racist. It's crazy. What we have to do is to stop illegal immigration, and that means the crossings from Tunisia um, and the crossings from Calais, uh, ours being a much smaller problem than Europe's. Um, and yeah, we're going to have, I mean, I mean, Rwanda, it's not a big deal in terms of numbers, but symbolically it's a very important deal. So look, I think, I think that any nation that respects itself and respects its own communities has sensible controls on its borders. And it's that feeling we've lost that uh, that is leading to a huge amount of political anger in both Europe and Britain at the moment. And as far as Africa's future is concerned, it's quite interesting, really. Despite Africa's problems, look at growth rates across Africa and compare it you know, to what we're experiencing. And there's a big race on for Africa. You know, maybe we need to be more involved again in Africa in this sense. If we don't do it, China will. We don't do it, China will. And China already has significant mineral interests and much else. But look, it's a huge topic. It's a huge topic. Thank you. Thank you. Huge topic. So I, um, I employ 99.99% um, overseas workers as a small business owner across the UK. We've got about 40 staff at the moment. We're going to increase that to about 160 staff. The reason why I employ overseas workers is because the British workforce are unwilling for various reasons to work over, say, a 20 hours uh, period, largely because universal credit will top up their income to the tune of about £2,500 per yeah, month. What are they doing? What sort of staff are they? Uh, so these are healthcare workers, so they come over on a skilled shortage visa, perfectly legal route, uh, route of entry through the, the whole process through the Home Office. Um, I would happily employ British workforce if British workforce were willing to do the job. Uh, what would you do to change it if you had the, the, the magic wand to make that better? Well, you've just beautifully described how well-intentioned benefits have become glass ceilings. The people get trapped. They're trapped in this system of benefits where it's not worth going to work. So why take the job? And that then leads to a negative form of thinking and, and negative behavior, frankly, as an individual. People need goals. If you take goals away from people, they decline as people. And it probably sounds a bit brutal, but I'm afraid it's true. So we've got to get around this benefits trap, and it's going to, t I tell you what, it's going to take political courage on a huge scale to do it. Somebody once said to me, benefits are like this. You know, there's a dog there that wants more food, and it's up to you. But once you've given that bone to the dog, you try and get the bloody thing back. And benefits are a bit like that. The more benefits we give, 
the more benefits we make available, the more politically impossible it seems we could take any of them away. So, how do you do it? The only way you can do it, the o- I've believed this for many, 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 many years, the only way you can do it is to effectively have no tax on minimum wage earnings. So if people earning, if people earning 70 to 18,000 a year were paying no tax, then I think suddenly you start to see that coming off benefit and going into work actually makes you better off. All the while it doesn't want to ever solve it. On the foreign workers point, that's fine. Foreign workers coming in is fine, but they should not be entitled to health care benefits of any kind at all. And that, I think, is where, again, some of the anger has been stored up. Because if people coming in on visas like this are allowed to stay, bring kids, bring dependents, then net for the UK economy, it's a loss, not a profit. So, you know, we have to deal with this sensibly. We have to, we have to be a bit tougher, but yeah. I, I, who is the modern day Mrs. Thatcher? Who is the person with the courage to take on the benefit system? Uh, at some point, we're going to need it. Otherwise, we're going to go, otherwise we are going to go bust. And just look at it. You know, Cameron became PM in 2010. Our accumulated national debt since Napoleon was 700 billion. It's now 2.58 trillion. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. Our interest repayments for 2023-4, our interest repayments on national debt will be 110 billion. These are very, very real economic problems that, that the country has got. You know, we've got to get richer. And to be richer, we have to be more productive. <coughs> we've got to work harder. We've got to produce more as a nation. We've got to innovate more as a nation. I mean, and, and, and I remember us doing it. If we'd sat in this room in 1978, we'd be a gloomier than we are now. It looked like it was all over. I mean, it really looked like the country was done for. And yet we turned it around in the next decade. So we can turn it around, and we must turn it around, but we're going to need at some point the right leadership to inspire us to do it. And leadership, you know, leadership can make a difference to the collective consciousness and feel of a nation. Thank you. Who's next? Gentleman there. <coughs> Do you think it's time for the uh, licence fee to be scrapped? Well, I'm not a great fan of the BBC, as you know. Um, <laughs> I, yes is the answer, in short. I, we, everything's changed, hasn't it? You know, there are things that are free to watch. There are things that we pay to watch. There is an absolute multiplicity of entertainment shows, of sporting opportunities, of uh, current affairs, of politics, or whatever it wants. Uh, but, but there's one thing I would keep. <coughs> I do think the BBC World Service matters. And we should never underestimate how important the BBC is as a global brand for Britain. And what it, and what it represents, what it's represented in the past, and actually, you talk about Africa and, you know, the BBC World Service still does a fantastic job covering Africa. Yeah, yeah, it, it does a fantastic job, you know, and, and 
those of us that don't sleep much often listen to it at three and four in the morning, you know. Short way. So, 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 yeah, it does matter. It does matter. But you... Yeah, well, yeah, well, well, what a very valuable service. What a very valuable... So, look, you know, we do need to keep that, but we don't need to go on funding it through the licence fee. There's nothing to stop the BBC appealing for its own chunk of the advertising market or its own chunk of the corporate, sp um, uh, corporate sponsor market. Yeah, we cut the, this current model, it's it, three billion a year for a state broadcaster. It makes no sense anymore. Yeah, I, because they, they want to introduce it into the council tax so that every household has to pay. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm actually more vexed by something else. I'm more vexed by road charging. Yeah. I, I'm more vexed by road charging. I see these cameras going up everywhere. Uh, Matthew Paris in the Times yesterday saying road charging is the way forward. I, I, just, I, just, I, I just feel we're, 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 we are becoming one of the most surveilled countries in the world. And it's not the criminals that are being caught. It's just ordinary folk going about their business being criminalised. So I'm, I'm more, I, mean, I get the licence fee argument, but I'm, I'm, I think the war on the motorist uh, concerns me even more. Um, and I think it's amazing, you know, so many of those that make, that make transport policy live in the centre of big cities, don't have a driving licence, live their little, you know, metro lives on bicycles and just don't get how the real world is. The, 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 the level of detachment is quite extraordinary. And hence the row over you, Les. You know, 60% plus of those who live in the outer boroughs of London commute by car. Because there aren't enough buses, there aren't trains. You know, um, yeah, that's the one that really gets me. Hi, Nigel. You mentioned earlier that you thought that next year we might see a war with China. And knowing the likely participants, that will likely look, make Ukraine look like a domestic squabble. What do you think the impact on the world economy and the UK will be? <coughs> that all depends on how we decide to react. I do think, I do think, that a Chinese invasion of Ukraine. I, I, I mean, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to put a number on it, I'm over 60%. I think it's more likely it'll happen than not. And if you look at their recent wargaming exercises, they've done two big wargaming exercises over the course of the last few months. They're not mucking about. President Xi has completely changed China. You know, they're taking disputed assholes in the South China Sea and building, and, and building airstrips on them. Their naval buildup. It's quite reminiscent, actually, of Kaiser Wilhelm's naval build-up in the early part of the 20th century. The signs are all there. We just need to see it. What do we do? Is America really going to get involved on, on Taiwan's behalf? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But you know what my hunch is? My hunches will barely respond. We'll condemn, but barely respond. In that scenario, what is the impact on the economy? Well, clearly, for sectors like the motor car industry, it's going to be pretty devastating. 
pretty devastating. Yeah, anything, well, well, but of course, the other side of that is, you know, investment that goes into tech companies developing ways of making chips will be huge. I, I, <coughs> I don't think, I don't think it would be quite as catastrophic as you might think to begin with. Inflation, it'd be inflationary in some areas, yes. Not necessarily devastating. I think the real problem that we've got with the Western economies is debt. Just a realization of how big national debt's become, and that's my worry for the markets. But look, your guess is, I mean, what do you think? Do you think they'd go and defend Taiwan? Do you? The Americans said they will. Yeah, well, what people say and what they do in life are often very different things. And how? How? What do you do? I mean, you know, if the Chinese have launched an amphibious invasion of Taiwan and got significant numbers of their men on, on the island, what do you do? Iwo Jima again? Is American public opinion going to swallow that? Look, none of us know the answer to this, but it is worth thinking about. Scary. Okay, we've got one we'll, last question. We'll try to end on a positive yeah, note. Because well, <laughs> <laughs> so, that one one's final it's too scary. <laughs> Sorry, I'll try not to do nuclear or world war. Um, I, I just think looking, obviously, you potentially could be quite polarizing in terms of views. I'm sure you're fully aware of that. I find that no matter what political views you have at the moment, it appears that everything is broken. And I feel like with social media driving the political discourse, people go into two different camps. It's either right or wrong. As you said earlier, you're either this or evil. Yeah. What do you think we can do to make political discourse? And I think the answers to a lot of these questions are much more nuanced than either right or left or binary answers. What do you think we can do both as a society to make things better in terms of improving our political discourse? Well, the social media point comes up yet again. Here's the problem. Because the algorithm knows what you like, it sends you what you like. And it doesn't send you what you don't like. And that's where the nuance gets missed. That's where the nuance gets missed. Um, so changing that formula, very, very difficult. When it comes to the, the, the bigger question that you raise about social discourse and all the rest of it, um, I remember there were two old boys used to drink in my village, Ed and Ted, right? And one was a communist, being kicked out of the army in World War II, dishonorable discharge for being a communist. And the other was Ted, and he was, you know, off the Richter, sort of Genghis Khan right. And they'd, and they'd have a couple of pints together. And by the end of a couple of pints, they were screaming and shouting at each other, calling each other abusive names, and one of them would storm off. And then one day I went in, and they're in the pub together, chatting and laughing, looking at the horses. I said, how can you call each other all the names under the sun one minute and be friendly the next? I always said, this is what we fought for. We fought for the right to be able to have these debates and have these arguments, but we don't, we, you know, we don't disrespect the human being. The next day, they're still our friends. We've got to get back to that. Is there any one way we're going to do it? And here is, here is perhaps the biggest 
social challenge that we face in the West. The education system. We need to teach critical thinking. We were all taught critical thinking. You know, here's a problem, here are two solutions. You, know, you make your mind up which of those is your preferred option, but understand what the other one is. And I feel at schools and universities, increasingly, we're not doing that. We're beginning to teach this is moral and good, this is bad. And that's the real problem. And I think a huge amount of the intolerance has come particularly through university-educated people. It's really interesting, actually. As somebody who's knocked on more doors and canvassed more street markets, it's quite interesting that very often people with lower levels of education are actually more open-minded to debate. I think many of the university, you know, if you look at our university, if, if you look at the areas of England or Britain that are dominated by young graduates, the politics is totally different to the rest of the country. I mean, totally different. You know, whether it's, you know, the strength of the Greens or whatever it may be, but you can see it very, very clearly. So education needs to get back to teaching people critical thinking and respect for other people's points of view. That is the long-term solution to the problem. Short-term, there is no great, I'm sorry, there is no solution to it. We're going to have to live with this, for, we're going to have to live with this, I think, for some years to come, I'm afraid. But, you know, it was never easy, though, was it? I mean, nothing, nothing in our history was ever easy. There were always problems at every juncture, you know, along our story. Gosh. Huge round of applause for Nigel.